Welcome to The Resilient Surgeon, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. Our goal with The Resilient Surgeon series is to inspire our colleagues to be their best selves in and out of the operating room using scientifically proven tools and recovery strategies of the world's top performers. I'm Dr. Michael Mattis, and in each episode, I will talk to game changers, some of the world's top executive coaches, psychologists, an ex-Navy SEAL officer, and physician scientists who will share evidence-based practices, real-world strategies, and their own personal stories and experiences to help you build your resilience and to help you be your best self no matter what. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. What is healthy? You know, how do you define healthy? I pr provide a simple definition that actually works empirically and can be quantified. Six words, two clauses, six words. Protect the liver, feed the gut. That's it. Any food that does both is healthy. Any food that does neither is poison. And any food that does one or the other, but not both, is somewhere in the middle. That is Dr. Robert Lustig, Professor Emeritus of Pediatric Endocrinology at the University of San Francisco, and author of not one, but three best-selling books, Fat Chance, The Hacking of the American Mind, and most recently, Metabolical, The Lures and Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine. As a pediatric endocrinologist, Dr. Lustig was confronted daily with an onslaught of children, some obese, others not who suffered from non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and metabolic syndrome. These were kids who didn't drink alcohol. That experience led him on a quest to find the cause, and he did, sugar, but more specifically, fructose. To quote Dr. Lustig, fructose is a toxin to humans. Dr. Lustig has also been a pioneer in cracking open the nefarious food industry and their corporate takeover of our minds and bodies. In his hard-hitting but science-based book, Metabolical, Dr. Lustig makes it clear that metabolic syndrome is not just for the obese, since 40% of thin people are metabolically ill, thanks almost entirely to processed food, fructose, and lack of fiber in our diets. All of this translates later in life to cancer, cardiovascular disease, and neurodegenerative diseases, to name a few of our modern maladies. In his book, Metabolical, Dr. Lustig provides clear and scientifically-based guidance on how to protect your body and mind from the ravages of processed food by protecting the liver and feeding the gut. It is no exaggeration to say that Dr. Lustig is literally a pioneer in this field, bringing much-needed common sense and science-based clarity to the often chaotic and misinformed world of nutrition. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Dr. Ara Vaporjan. I'm so excited to share news about the new STS Cardiothoracic Surgery eBook. It is the most complete and authoritative online resource of cardiothoracic surgical information available anywhere in the world. And it was authored and edited by the specialty's leading experts. This ebook provides a rich multimedia educational experience that includes regularly updated content in both cardiac and general thoracic surgery. So no more waiting for the textbook publishers to issue a new version every few years. We use the ebook in my training program and the residents love the high quality illustrations, photos, and surgical videos. The new ebook is available online or through a mobile app so that it's available in the office, at home, or at any point of care 24 seven. To see a sample and learn more about the STS Cardiothoracic Surgery eBook, go to sts.org slash eBook. Our guest today on the Resilient Surgeon Podcast is Dr. Robert Lustig, Professor Emeritus of Pediatric Endocrinology at the University of California at San Francisco. Dr. Lustig grew up in Brooklyn, New York, a fact you will likely recognize in his very forthright manner, where he graduated from Stuyvesant High School in Manhattan. He then obtained his bachelor's degree in nutritional biochemistry from MIT, his MD from Cornell, 
And after completing his pediatric residency at St. Louis Children's and a pediatric endocrinology fellowship at University of California at San Francisco, he went on to work as a postdoc fellow at Rockefeller University. Dr. Lustig was then on the faculty of the University of Wisconsin at Madison and St. Jude Children's until 2001 when he joined the faculty of UCSF where he is now Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics. Now I can just hear some of my colleagues possibly saying to themselves, why in the heck is Mattis bringing on a pediatric endocrinologist to the show? Well, here is why. Over his 40 year career, Dr. Lustig has been a direct witness to the staggering increase in childhood obesity, type two diabetes and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which put him on a massive quest to understand scientifically what in the hell was going on with these children. Well, that quest led to groundbreaking scientific studies on the role of sugar, and in particular fructose, in the demise of the metabolic health of up to 88% of all Americans, adults and children. Yes, you heard that right, 88%. So there's a very good chance that this includes me and you. But his quest has also led him to write three New York Times bestselling books. The first is Fat Chance, Beating the Odds Against Sugar, Processed Food and Obesity, and disease in which he clearly shows that a calorie is not a calorie. In his second book, The Hacking of the American Mind, the science behind the corporate takeover of our bodies and brains, he forcefully shows how the processed food industry has literally hacked our minds to pursue pleasure over happiness, which has dramatically contributed to our widespread problems with addiction and depression. His third and recently released book is Metabolical, the lure and lies of processed food, nutrition, and modern medicine. Though he is a pediatric endocrinologist, in my opinion, Dr. Lustig has the heart and attitude of a surgeon. In Metabolical, he brilliantly weaves together the history, politics, and economics of nutrition, and he pulls together the incredibly complex and dense science of metabolism, nutrition, and metabolic health into a framework that is not only understandable, but actionable, and is summed up in six words. Protect the liver, feed the gut. Metabolical is a hard-hitting, no-holds-barred book that clears the air completely of the chaos of dietary shoulds, dogma, and uninformed opinions to provide the clearest scientifically-based guidance possible about how simply eating whole foods can change the course of our metabolic health and therefore our lives. In my opinion, Metabolical should be required reading for every medical student in the country. It is literally a groundbreaking book. Dr. Lustig, it is such an honor to welcome you to the Resilient Surgeon Podcast. Well, thank you very much, Michael. However, I, I need to clarify and, and qualify one thing you said. Only Fat Chance was a New York Times bestseller. The other two um, didn't quite make it up the uh, ladder. Okay. Uh, however, if your cardiovascular surgery audience would like to <laughs> pursue the, these two books, maybe we can put it over the top. All right, everybody get out there today and order it on Amazon immediately. <laughs> okay, well, you know, I, I heard and read about your eating Swanson dinners as a kid. Yep. And I'd like you to tie that together with the three aha moments in your career that you mentioned elsewhere, and how that led up to your quest to solve this complex problem. Well, wow. <laughs> so, um, you know, first of all, uh, you, you know, this is the resilient surgeon podcast, and I want to make it very clear that surgeons are taught to fix the problem. Yeah, I want to fix the problem too. But what I've learned is that fixing the problem does not mean fixing the result of the problem. It mm -hmm. means fixing the cause of the problem. The cause. The cause. Yeah. Now, surgeons invariably tend to fix results, not causes. And I think mm -hmm. that surgeons and all doctors, and to be honest with you, you know, our politicians have to <clears throat> be working upstream <clears throat> of what they see in terms of determining root cause to answer these questions. Ultimately, we cannot operate our way out of this pandemic of chronic metabolic disease. Right. Here we are talking about bariatric surgery for treatment of diabetes. And yes, it does work. OK, 
okay, but you can't do enough surgeries. There aren't enough uh, laparoscopic surgeons to be able to do this. And, um, you know, those who do do that kind of laparoscopic surgery end up retiring early because they end up with neck problems because they can't even bend over far enough, you know, into a, a, an obese person's abdomen to be able to use the laparoscope. So this is not an answer. You know, we need a real answer. And so, you know, uh, I, I, in, uh, I enjoin your uh, colleagues, you know, to work upstream of the problem instead of just focusing on the result. Let's look at the cause. Yeah, so, right. <clears throat> start, with the, start with that. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, all right. Now, you know, my aha moments. In terms of the three aha moments in my career, um, the first one occurred when I was at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. And, you know, I'm a neuroendocrinologist, so I study how the brain controls hormones and how hormones control the brain. And, you know, sort of my bread and butter would be brain tumors, kids with brain tumors. And St. Jude had a stable of, you know, brain tumor patients who had survived their surgery, their radiation therapy, and become massively obese. This was a well-known documented mm -hmm. phenomenon mm -hmm. that Babinski and Freelich had described in 1901, which was termed hypothalamic obesity because damage to the hypothalamus led to massive weight gain. And of course, everybody was, you know, thought that there was some satiety center in the hypothalamus that had been um, disrupted, but no one could ever figure out where that satiety center was, et cetera. So, I was faced with 20 to 30 of these kids and, you know, what was I going to do for them? You know, they were all 350 to 400 pounds. And, you know, the parents wow. were saying, this is double jeopardy. You know, my kid is going to, you know, you know, survived the, the, the tumor only to, to succumb to one of the therapies, you know, and it was up to me. Um, so as a neuroendocrinologist, you know, I knew about these studies from the 80s where they had lesioned the ventromedial hypothalamus in rats and these rats became massively obese. And we knew that these rats put out enormous amounts of the hormone insulin. And we knew that there was a connection between the hypothalamus and the pancreas that went through the dorsal motor nucleus of the vagus nerve. Mm -hmm. So we knew all of that. And you guys in cardiovascular surgery, you know a lot about the vagus nerve, okay? Because you have to avoid it. Right, right. <laughs> right? Don't cut the damn thing. Don't cut the damn thing. Well, maybe you need to cut the damn thing. Uh, and we've actually mm -hmm. shown that vagotomy, okay? Uh, laparoscopic truncal vagotomy can actually inhibit insulin release and is, you know, something that uh, had been used, you know, we've learned from the ulcer literature from Dragstead from 1943 can actually infect weight loss because the vagus nerve is conveying information from the hypothalamus to the pancreas regarding insulin release. So anyway, I'm not a surgeon. I don't cut vagus nerves, but the question is, could I do something similar? Could I give patients a medicine that would reduce um, uh, insulin release. And as an endocrinologist, I had in my back pocket, this drug called octreotide, which is probably known to all of you as well, because it reduces uh, lymphatic flow, you know, so you probably use it uh, for, you know, various uh, things uh, in, in cardiovascular uh, surgery and thoracic surgery. Um, so I said, all right, let's give octreotide to these patients and see what happens. And I did. And sure enough, these patients lost weight and they lost weight as their insulin went down. But something more remarkable happened. Okay. And I can sum it up with a, uh, a vignette of the first patient I ever treated with octreotide. Okay. This is patient number one. And I told the mom, you know, as soon as we started the octreotide, you know, call me in a week. She called me in five days, screaming on the phone, Dr. Lustig, something's happening. And I went, Oh God, serious adverse event, shut down the study, go to jail. You know, I'm, I'm just like waiting for the other shoe to drop. Well, well, what happened? She goes, well, normally we would go to Taco Bell and she would eat five tacos and an enchirito and she'd still be hungry. Well, we just went to Taco Bell and she ate two tacos 
and she was full. And she just vacuumed the house. Vacuumed the house. Okay, this was a kid who sat on the couch, ate Doritos and slept. And she just vacuumed the house. And this wasn't uh, a, you know, uh, an outlier. Turned out virtually all the patients I treated started exercising spontaneously. One kid became a competitive swimmer. One, two kids started lifting weights at home. One kid became the manager of his high school basketball team, running around collecting all the basketballs. These were kids who did nothing. They were lumps on a log. This was what the parents were referring to as the double jeopardy. They lost interest in every aspect of life. And now all of a sudden they've got their kid back. And it was because we got their insulin down. And we showed this in a double-blind placebo-controlled trial. What this demonstrated to me early on was that the biochemistry controls the behavior, not the other way around. Everyone else thinks it's the behavior, you know, and it's willpower. And it's what, you know, uh, you, know you eat too much, you exercise too little. Well, yeah, of course you eat too much, exercise too little. The question is why? And it turns out the answer is insulin and leptin resistance. And what we learned from our further studies was that insulin blocks leptin signaling. Insulin is an endogenous leptin antagonist. So when the insulin goes up, the leptin doesn't work. And so you end up eating too much and laying on the couch because your leptin doesn't work, because your insulin was high. And when you get the insulin down, both of those get better. And so the biochemistry controls the behavior. So that was the first aha moment. And I, we actually constructed our clinic at UCSF, our pediatric obesity clinic, around this precept of get the insulin down any way you can. I didn't run an obesity clinic. I ran an insulin reduction clinic. And it worked. So that was the first. So the second aha moment occurred in 2006. Um, I was asked to give a talk at the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, NIH, down at Research Triangle Park, uh, the toxicologists. And they were having their 100-year anniversary uh, symposium. And the first day was on uh, successes. So the morning was lead poisoning, and uh, the afternoon was uh, pollution and asthma. And the second day was supposed to be challenges. So the morning was going to be obesity and metabolic syndrome, and the afternoon was going to be ADHD and autism. So they asked me to give a talk on what I thought was the single most environmental toxin, worst environmental toxin that was leading to obesity and metabolic syndrome. And I'm sure they thought I was going to come up with something like phthalates or BPA right. or, you know, organochlorines or, you know, some environmental toxicant, you know, Roundup or whatever. So I thought to myself, wait a second. All right. I'm a pediatrician. I'm a pediatric endocrinologist. What diseases are now present in children that were never present in children before? Mm -hmm. Answer, type 2 diabetes and fatty liver disease. Right. There was no type 2 diabetes in children, ever. None, ever. Like, none. Yeah. Well, there was Modi, but they're not type 2s. Okay. Bottom line, fatty liver disease, you know, that was a, the disease of aging. That was the disease of alcohol. Prior to 1980, mm -hmm. if you had fatty liver, that was an alcoholic period. And now 20% of all children have fatty liver disease and 40% of obese children. So the question is, like, what caused that? Well, 20%, I just want to highlight that. 20% of all children, all children have fatty 25 liver. 25% of adults. 25% of adults. Okay, that's just 40, that's a, 45, 45. Okay. So this is the biggest pandemic of all. I mean, right. you know, this blows COVID out of the friggin' water. Yeah. Okay. In terms of, you know, but the problem is it's silent until it's not, until right. you have cirrhosis, you know? Yeah. So. So the question to me was, all right, what's causing that in children? So I went to my Leninger biochemistry textbook from 1974, and I opened it up and I said, all right, these were the diseases of alcohol, all right? But kids don't drink alcohol. What's so going what's, on? What's metabolized like alcohol? Yeah. And then it was right there on the page. Fructose. Fructose. Yep. The molecule in sugar that's sweet. 
Now, yeah. glucose is metabolized a little differently, but fructose, the sweet molecule in sugar, which turns out to be the addictive molecule in the sugar, mm -hmm. too, mm -hmm. fructose is metabolized just like alcohol. And it makes sense that that would be the case because after all, where do you get alcohol from? Fermentation of sugar. It's called wine. We do it in Napa and Sonoma every day. The big difference between fructose and alcohol is that for alcohol, the yeast does the glycolysis. For sugar, we do our own glycolysis. But after that, what's presented to the mitochondria in terms of pyruvate, which gets converted to acetyl-CoA to participate in the TCA cycle, mitochondria don't care where it came from. Right. This is mitochondrial overload. This is what happens when you provide too much substrate to a fixed VMAX system. Yep. And so the hair cell has no choice but to take the extra and turn it into fat in order to try to export it. But of course, some doesn't get exported. Some precipitates as a lipid droplet. And now you've got fatty liver disease in children, not because they drink alcohol, but because they drink or consume sugar. And so it became very clear that sugar was the alcohol of the child. Right, right. So I went to this NIH meeting and I said, I think that the environmental toxin that all these kids are exposed to is sugar. <laughs> and, uh, I can just why. imagine. Yeah. And I said, why? And my talk was the last talk before the bathroom break. And so they all filed out, and, you know, and I'm talking to people at the, the dais, you know, and no one's coming back. You know, we got a whole afternoon to go and no one's coming back. And so I, I go out into the lobby and to the bathroom and everyone's in there going, oh my God, oh my God, he's right, he's right. And they said, you have to trumpet this from the mountaintops. Okay, everybody that right? know yeah. about this. And, I went, yeah. and these are the toxicologists yeah. saying sugar's a toxin. And so I've been talking about it ever since. And now we actually know that sugar is three mitochondrial toxins in one. It interferes with AMP kinase. It interferes with uh, acyl-CoA uh, dehydrogenase long chain, ACAD-L, and it interferes with CPT1, carnitine palmitoyl transferase 1, all of which are necessary to build new mitochondria and have them work at peak efficiency. Nowhere is this more important than the brain, and by the way, the heart, because after all, the heart doesn't have any place to store glycogen. Right. It's right. So why do you think you, all these people with metabolic syndrome are getting heart failure. They're getting heart failure irrespective of their coronary disease. And it's because of mitochondrial dysfunction. Mitochondrial dysfunction. So this is very relevant to you guys. Mm -hmm. All right. Mm -hmm. So that was the second aha. The third aha came in 2016. And it wasn't my aha. It was my colleague's aha. But, you know, I, I, I tagged on. Um, my colleagues, Kristen Carnes, Laura Schmidt, and Stan Glantz at UCSF, who had done really good work in alcohol and tobacco, found the treasure trove, the paper trail of the sugar industry's effort to deflect, deceive, deny, uh, and uh, divert attention from the toxicity of their product in the 1970s. Okay. And they paid off two Harvard School of Public Health scientists, the chairman of the department, Fred Stair, and his assistant, Mark Hegstead, who ended up becoming the head of the USDA, okay. to basically exonerate yeah. sugar and finger saturated fat as the bad guy in cardiovascular disease. That this was a put up job. Yeah. And they knew what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And their um, uh, contribution to those two uh, uh, review articles in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1967 was never disclosed. So, they're, they're, uh, the, the monies and stuff that they've received, you mean? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that was the third aha. It wasn't my aha, it was their aha, but okay. You know, the point was, it made it very clear that this was not just a mistake. <clears throat> right. It was a bigger, bigger problem, much bigger problem, a much bigger problem, much bigger problem. And it has been promulgated for over the last 50 years because it's making the food industry money. So bottom line, they get rich, we die. Right. That's what it comes down to. And so that's why I had to write this book, Metabolical, 
So my first book, Fat Chance, which came out in 2013, you know, the standard mantra that everyone believed that Michael, you believed was you are what you eat, which by the way, we never said. Briash Savoyan, the famous physiologist, gastronomist from 1825, famously said, tell me what you eat and I will tell you what you are. Mm -hmm. I got abridged and truncated down to you are what you eat, which is not eat. quite the same. But that's what we all believed because that's what we were told. All right. Turns out that's not true. And I knew that in you know 2006. And so I wrote Fat Chance basically saying you are what you do with what you eat. That what you metabolize is more important than the calories that you consume. It's what those molecules actually do. What they do. But then, but then with the knowledge of what was going on, you know, the dark underbelly of, you know, the food industry. Corporate food. Write that, right. That, yeah. that the food's been poisoned in essence. Okay. I had to write metabolical to basically restate the argument. You are what they did with what you mm -hmm. And is that a contraction of diabolical and meta metabolism? Yes. So metabolical yeah. is metabolic, the workings of the body, and diabolical, the workings of big food, big pharma, and big government. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now, on the topic of fructose metabolism, glucose, and insulin, I, I, I think it would be very helpful to have a very brief synopsis of, and uh, maybe if you just correct me if I'm wrong about some of this. And basically, what I understand is, that fructose is absorbed uh, readily into the portal vein and its metabolism really has no uh, uh, controls on it as compared to glycolysis. That's right. Where there's, oh. there's, if you could just kind of go through that and the role of insulin, sure. uh, e even in the long-term consequences of type one diabetes and how that's an important player in smooth muscle in that. Sure. So the, 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 so the point is that glucose and fructose are not the same. The food industry says a calorie is a calorie, a sugar is a sugar. Garbage. Garbage. Yeah. Complete, utter, total trash. And they trash. know it. And they know it. They know it's trash. But if they admitted that it wasn't trash, okay, the whole house of cards would come down. Come falling down. Yeah. So they are not going to you know, admit the real story. All right. Um, just like, you know, the oil industry didn't want to admit the real story. The opioid people didn't want to admit the real story. Same, so, same process. Same, yep. thing, same thing. Same thing. All right. So glucose and fructose, they are not the same. Glucose is the energy of life. Every cell on the planet burns glucose for energy. Glucose is so important that if you don't consume it, your body makes it. Gluconeogenesis at the liver. Okay. Turn protein, per, turn glycerol into glucose. All right. So the Inuit. They don't have any carbohydrate. They have whale blubber. They have ice. You know, there's no place to grow. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. They still have a serum glucose level because they need to. So their liver turns glucose into, uh, sorry, it turns fat or protein into glucose. Right. right. Fructose, on the other hand, there is no biochemical reaction in any eukaryotic organism that requires it. When provided in excess, it causes cellular dysfunction, cell death and human death. And we love it anyway, and it's addictive. Okay, so just Not really just gotta highlight that. There is no cell in any eukaryotic organism that needs fructose. It is completely vestigial to human life. Yes, in yes. Fact, in fact, it's just like alcohol. Yeah. All those things are also true for alcohol. Yeah. Now, just so you don't think I am fructocentric, there are actually four foodstuffs that are really not foodstuffs mm -hmm. okay, that have, are metabolized in the liver identically. Okay? One is trans fats, but we know that and they're coming out. Branched chain amino acids, leucine, isoleucine, valine, are metabolized the same way. Alcohol and fructose, those four. What they do is they, when given in excess, they cause liver fat. And the liver fat causes liver dysfunction, causes hepatic insulin resistance. The pancreas, which is in series with the liver, right? Your mm -hmm. surgeons, you know mm -hmm. that the pancreatic vein drains into the portal vein, not into the inferior vena cava. Why is that? The whole mm -hmm. rest of the body, okay? It's <laughs> your artery, organ, vein, heart, 
Okay, there are only two places in the body where there's a portal system: hypothalamus pituitary. You know, that's mm -hmm. that's right. I remember that now. Yeah. Okay, and now there and pancreas, liver. Okay, that's the other portal system. All right. Why is the pancreas in series with the liver? Answer: Because the liver's the primary target of insulin action. And so the liver, when it's dysfunctional, sends a reflex signal to the pancreas saying, I'm sick. So the pancreas ends up releasing more insulin to make the liver do its job. That raises peripheral insulin levels all over the body. Now you've got hyperinsulinemia. Now you've got leptin resistance because insulin blocks leptin. And you also have more insulin at the adipocyte forcing energy into those adipocytes for storage, driving obesity. And the vicious cycle just continues. And then the vicious cycle continues. So let me just encapsulate that if I can. So, you know, if you're in a calorically excessive circumstance, well, maybe not even that. I mean, I was curious about if you're running a caloric deficit, what the impact of fructose would be. But let's just assume we're just eating a normal diet. We're not in a dieting state or, you know, lower calories. That excess fructose in the diet will go to producing liver fat, which right. causes liver dysfunction. Right. It, which, can be, it can either be exported out and, and exported out and, with ApoB100 as serum right. triglyceride. Right. So, and the serum triglyceride can contribute to cardiovascular disease and or obesity, or it'll precipitate in the liver and then you've got fatty liver disease, in which case it's causing type 2 diabetes and you know, cancer, dementia, et cetera. Yeah. And the same process, if I remember correctly, happens in the pancreas. Is that not mm -hmm. correct? non-alcoholic fatty pancreas disease, mm -hmm. exactly. And we have data on that, which we are about to publish regarding cutting back the sugar in kids' diets and watching their non-alcoholic fatty pancreas disease and therefore their insulin dynamics improve because yes, the pancreas becomes dysfunctional from the fat laid down as well. All right, so this issue of fructose and as a toxin, uh, has dramatic impact on the metabolic processes in the body. And in the book, you beautifully lay out the eight intracellular processes that have gone awry in metabolic dysfunction. I think it'd be great if you could go over those. Sure. So everyone talks about the diseases that are going up in society, you know, type two diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, polycystic ovarian disease, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Sure. These are not diseases. They are symptoms of disease. Okay. And this I is a revolutionary know. perspective here, and it's really fantastic the way you've laid that out in the book. Yeah. And the high paradigm Aldale, shift. Right. The high Aldale is not the disease, it's the symptom of the disease. Mm -hmm. The high blood pressure is not the disease, it's the symptom of the disease. Now, if you know, treating symptoms does not treat disease. Okay. It's like giving an aspirin to a patient with a brain tumor because they have a headache. Right. Right. might fix the headache, ain't going to do a damn thing for the brain tumor. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what we are doing with modern medicine. And this is why the book is called The Learn the Lies of you know, Modern Medicine. There's, because when it comes to chronic metabolic disease, okay, we can't fix any of them. Right. Okay. And there's no pill for this. And to be honest with you, there's no operation for this either. No, there isn't. Yeah. Okay. So you're, and you're, you're CD, you know, and thoracic colleagues need to, you know, get with that. Okay. There's no operation for this. All right. So what's really going on is dysfunction in each of these uh, uh, different cells of the body causing different uh, uh, metabolic outcomes. Okay. But the eight subcellular pathologies that belie these chronic diseases, and I put that in quotes, okay, are, are relatively universal. So here they are. These are the eight. There's no ICD-11 code for any of them. Okay. Doctors don't know about them. Therefore, doctors don't discuss them with their patients because there's no pill for them and they can't get reimbursed for it anyway. So here they are. One, glycation. Two, oxidative stress. Three, mitochondrial dysfunction. Four, insulin resistance. Five, okay. membrane instability. Six, inflammation. Seven, methylation. And eight, autophagy. Now, when these eight are functioning to your benefit, when they're streamlined and running as they should, you will be 110 playing tennis. When they are not working right, when they are working wrong, 
you will be 40 with two stumps in a wheelchair on dialysis waiting for your next stroke. Mm-hmm. Those are your choices. Okay. Those are the extremes. Mm-hmm. But, and then of course, everything in between. Point is, it's those eight subcellular pathologies that belie all these other chronic diseases. And when you look at the molecular mechanisms and the pathways and the cofactors and the co-repressors, which I outline in the book, for each right. of these eight pathologies, you realize there's no drug target. There is no drug that fixes these. There are drugs that will fix the results of these. Yeah, sure. You can get your LDL down with a statin. Yes, you can get bl- your blood pressure down with an antihypertensive. Yes, you can get your blood glucose down with an oral hypoglycemic. Sure, sure, sure. I got that. But that's not the disease. That's the manifestation of the disease. Right, right. And so when you look at those pathways, you realize they're not druggable, but they are foodable. Foodable, foodable. Foodable. But they're foodable both ways. In other words, when you eat real food, you make them better. When you eat processed food, you actually poison them. And they all eight work together in the, all the cells of our body, basically, Correct. in one form or another, uh, to create havoc. And, and all the, the eight diseases, cancer and, and the like that you've just outlined. Exactly right. Yeah. So different tissues will respond differently. And so you will end up with different manifestations of this chronic metabolic you know, debacle. Right. Right. right? So, you know, fatty liver disease might look different from cancer, but in fact, they're all related and they all cluster together. All these diseases, the cold Mm -hmm. syndrome, Mm -hmm. you know, Jerry Reven famously, you know, clustered these diseases together, but didn't understand what the actual cause of it was. He understood that insulin resistance belied all of them, which is true, but really insulin resistance is a manifestation of mitochondrial dysfunction. Right. And it, could you comment briefly on, on fructose and its particularly uh, insidious role in glycation? Sure. So as you know, diabetics monitor their hemoglobin A1C. So what is that? That is glucose bound to position one on the hemoglobin molecule. All right. And you know, that has a three month half-life. So it tells you about your glucose excursions in a general sense for the last three months. And that's why uh, diabetics monitor that. And that's all true, right? Glucose binds to proteins. It binds to epsilon amino groups of lysine through a process which is called the Maillard reaction, okay? It's the same reaction that occurs when you paint barbecue sauce on your ribs. It's the same reaction that causes wrinkles it's the same reaction that causes cataracts, all right? This is the aging reaction, the Maillard reaction, the browning reaction, all right? And it's occurring in all cells all the time. It is a function of life. The only way to stop the Maillard reaction is to be dead. But the question is how fast does it occur in any given cell at any given time? So if you don't believe me, you are cardiovascular surgeons. Newborn rib cartilage, so those of you who do pediatric cardiovascular surgery, you have to cut through the sternum. You will notice that that rib cartilage is nice and white. Pristinely white. Pristinely white. And you cardiovascular surgeons who do, you know, cardiovascular surgery on 88-year-olds instead, notice that that rib cartilage is brown. That is the Maillard reaction, okay? And it's occurring in everyone. You are browning as we speak. But if you had orange juice this morning, you are browning seven times faster. And the reason is because the fructose molecule, because of its unique stereochemistry, because it is a five-membered ring instead of a six-membered ring, because it has two hydroxymethyl groups that are axial in the same plane, button heads, leading to allosteric interaction, driving the ring apart into the linear form where the reactive keto group is available to bind to that epsilon amino group of, uh, of lysine. It turns out that fructose engages in that Maillard reaction seven times faster than glucose. And it generates 100 times the number of oxygen radicals. Now, so, yeah. what's worse is that the hemoglobin A1C 
it measures glucose binding to hemoglobin. Fructose binding to hemoglobin does not occur at position one. It occurs at positions 66 and 110. But you don't pick that up in the hemoglobin A1C. Acid. Right, right. So it turns out that fructation, fructosylation of proteins is going on and we're not even measuring it. We're not looking at it. It's only done it's, in labs. It's not just hemoglobin A1C. I just want to right. emphasize that, right? I mean, this is throughout this is the body. Going, right. This is going on irrespective of hemoglobin A1C. So hemoglobin yeah. A1C is, an, it is a very poor proxy for this glycation slash oxidative stress uh, phenomenon. And although fructose is metabolized primarily in the liver, I assume, and I, I've not been able to find anything about this, that fructose levels in the blood must, if you're drinking orange juice or something that's just loaded, mainlining essentially, you must achieve blood levels that puts Absolutely. it in other places. Yeah. Absolutely. So. So you, you, you consume fructose, it enters the portal vein, and then you have a hepatic first pass extraction. And the hepatic first pass extraction of fructose is pretty good. It's about 85%. Okay, that's not bad because the GLUT5 transporter sitting on right. the hepatocyte, bringing fructose, that's fructose specific. Also the GLUT7, 9, and 11 transporters also transport fructose. All right, fine. The point is you can overwhelm that capacity. You can overwhelm your glucose trans your fructose transport capacity. By consuming a glass of orange juice, you have exceeded that hepatic first pass extraction. And so now you have a serum fructose level. A glass of orange juice. A glass I just want to underline juice. that. A glass of orange juice. Gives yeah. you a serum fructose level of six micromolar. Okay. <laughs> now that fructose goes to the brain and causes mitochondrial dysfunction in the brain. It goes to the heart and causes mitochondrial dysfunction in the heart. And it goes to virtually every other organ in the body as well. And one place it goes is the pancreas. And it turns out there's a fructose sensor on the pancreas. And so when fructose reaches the pancreas, it will put out even more insulin. So it's always said that fructose doesn't stimulate insulin. Well, actually, yes, it does. Mm. When you overwhelm the liver's first pass capacity. I see, I see. So it makes it even worse. So that's, there that's is stuff. nothing good about this molecule. Nothing good about it. We love it and it's addictive. Yeah. Yeah. That's not good. <laughs> there might be one little corner where it's good and we'll get to that in a bit about the, you know, feed the gut. Um, but that seems to be the only one. And it brings that's me good. to... And, and maybe I'm wrong about that, but it brings me to, I was, I was recently at a, at a medical institution working with the cardiovascular thoracic surgical residency program. And as part of the, we went into the conference room and there's a big spread of, and this is literally just a couple months ago. All right. Donuts, bagels, cream cheese, coffee with sugar and containers of juice. Right. Okay. okay. Now that's not, this is in the medical world. <laughs> and so, and, and so what I, what I'd like you to take is, is that, that issue and juxtapose that with protect the liver and feed the gut. And, 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 you know, I know we've got a kind of a hard stop here in 15 minutes, but to talk about the, you know, how that, how that works relative to eating a real food or whole food diet. Right. So in the book, I talk about what is healthy. You know, the FDA doesn't have a definition or the definition is completely useless. They're trying to come up with a new definition. I've actually offered them one. The USDA does not have a definition because if they did have a definition, then all these food industries couldn't put claims on their products. You know, these structural right. claims about right. being healthy, you know, bottom line. Um, what is healthy? You know, how do you define healthy? I pr provide a simple definition that actually works empirically and can be quantified. Six words, two clauses, six words, protect the liver, feed the gut. That's it. Any food that does both is healthy. Any food that does neither is poison. And any food that does one or the other, but not both is somewhere in the middle. Like and I want to em emphasize the word poison. Poison, poison, poison. It's poison to those eight metabolic pathways that you've Correct. outlined. Yes. Correct. Correct. Exactly right. 
So protect the liver. Protect the liver from what? All right. Protect the liver from the fructose onslaught. Protect the liver from a refined carbohydrate onslaught because that will turn into an insulin response because insulin is the bad guy in the story because insulin causes cell dysfunction. Cell, um, it causes the growth phenomenon. So everyone thinks insulin's good because it lowers blood glucose. There are two pathways in each cell that have an insulin receptor, which is basically all of them, okay? Two pathways. One is the metabolic pathway, which is mediated primarily by the transcription factor, AKT. Mm -hmm. And that's what lowers your blood glucose and get, basically drives metabolism. And the second pathway is mediated by the enzyme MAP kinase, mitogen-associated protein kinase. Okay. And that is the cell growth and differentiation pathway. Now, the metabolic pathway, for lack of a better word, is good. The cell growth and differentiation pathway, for lack of a better word, is bad. Because that's what's causing vascular smooth muscle proliferation in your coronary arteries. That's what's causing uh, proliferation of breast epithelial cells leading to risk for cancer. That's what's causing problems in the uterus and in the ovary in terms of why you end up with uh, uh, anovulation and hirsutism. That's what's causing problems all over the body in terms of metabolic functioning is this growth phenomenon, which the cell is trying not to engage in. It's trying to mm -hmm. burn, not grow. Mm -hmm. Every cell can either burn or grow, but not both at the same time. And insulin is one of the things that drives the growth phenomenon rather than the burning phenomenon. Insulin's the bad guy in the story. Get the friggin' insulin down. That's the key. And would you define metabolic health as a low insulin level, fasting insulin Absolutely. level? Absolutely. Yeah. A low insulin level is metabolic health and a high insulin level is metabolic dysfunction. Yeah. And it's easy enough to find out, just draw fasting insulin level. Yeah. yeah. Now here's the problem with that. The American Diabetes Association says, oh no, don't draw fasting insulin level. Why? Why do they say that? Well, they say it for two reasons and both of them are specious. And here they are. The first is Fasting insulin levels are not standardized across different laboratories across America. That's true. And the reason they're not standardized, I mean, here we are in, 19, in 2021 and mm -hmm. not standardized. The reason they're not standardized is because pretty much it's all done by either antibody tests, uh, ELISAs, you know, which, uh, you know, use an antibody to, to absorb it. A lot of those antibodies not only detect insulin, but they also interact with its pro-hormone, pro-insulin. Pro-insulin, right. Pro-insulin turns out to be only 5% active. It has to be, the C-peptide has to be cleaved out of the pro-insulin molecule to make it active. And when you have type two diabetes, your pancreas is working overtime to try to get everything it can out. It doesn't have time to cleave that C-peptide from the, from the enzyme pro-hormone convertase one. So it will release pro-insulin. So these patients all have hyper pro-insulinemia, which gets picked up in the insulin assay. So the fasting insulin looks high. The point is a lot of it may be pro-insulin. Who cares? The point is it's high. That's it's high. Yeah. No, it's high. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The point is the only way to know is to draw it. Mm -hmm. So that's the first reason the ADA is wrong. The second reason the ADA is wrong is because they say, well, fasting insulin levels don't correlate with obesity. That's true. They don't. They correlate with metabolic health. All right. That's telling you that these eight subcellular pathologies are working irrespective of how much, you know, subcutaneous fat you have. And that, that gets at a critical point here that I'd like you to just comment on. And that is being overweight isn't necessarily the problem. That's right. So it could be the problem. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying being overweight is good per se. No. That's not right. Okay. But here's what you need to understand. Okay. Let's take the entire U.S. adult population. Okay. And divide it at BMI of 30. All right. So we have BMI under 30. We have BMI over 30. 30% 30 of Americans BMI under, uh, 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 under 30. Sorry. Uh, sorry. 70% of Americans BMI under 30. 30% of Americans BMI over 30. Okay, we'll leave it at that. Okay. Now, of the obese Americans with the BMI over 30, 80% of them 
have metabolic dysfunction. 80% of them are metabolically ill. I don't argue that. So without question, obesity tracks with metabolic disease. It's clear, strong correlation. Clear, strong correlation. I don't yeah. argue that at all. But only 80%. What's going on with the other 20%? These people are metabolically healthy. And we have a name for them, MHO, metabolically healthy obese. They will live a completely normal life, die at a completely normal age, not cost the taxpayer a dime. They're just fat. They even have normal length telomeres, the edges mm. of the chromosomes that determine whether or not the cell dies and whether you die. Right? 20% of obese people are metabolically healthy. Conversely, 40% of the normal weight population, the BMI under 30, have the exact same diseases as do the obese. They get type 2 diabetes, hypertension, right, right. cancer, dementia, et cetera. Okay? They get it at a lower BMI. They get it at a lower weight, but they get it. And they get it for the same reason. They're just not fat. So what this is telling us is it's not the fat you can see that matters. It's the fat you can't see. It's the fat in the liver. It's the fat in the muscles. It's the ectopic fat. But you don't measure that on a scale. And you don't measure that in a dress size or in a belt size. Right. right. The point is that lots of people are metabolically ill. And they don't. Even, even if you're trim, it doesn't mean that you're good. That's, That's the bottom line. Yeah. And, and even if you're fat, it doesn't mean you're bad. Right. Right. Okay. And people, and people, especially doctors, need to understand this because, you know, you'll get on the scale at the doctor's office and the doctor say, oh, you know, your weight's fine. Go away. And you're fine. You can go away. All right. And that's not true. All right. Now we got to get into the feeding the gut. So we talk about protect the liver, feed the gut. And if so you could talk the about the colander thing and that, it would be great. Right. Sure. So the protect the liver is, you know, also, you know, protected from branched chain amino acids, protected from alcohol, protected from glyphosate, protected from heavy metals, protected from a lot of things. Okay. Feed the gut, feed the gut. What, and why do you have to feed the gut? All right. So as you all now know, okay, you have 10 trillion cells in your body, but you have a hundred trillion bacteria in your intestine. They outnumber you 10 to one. Each of us is just really a big bag of bacteria with legs. Now those bacteria have to eat something. Question is, what do they eat? Well, they eat what you eat. The question is, how much did you get versus how much did they get? The goal is to give them more. Clearly, we don't need more. We need to give them more. Fiber, fiber in our food, fiber in real food. And there are two kinds of fiber, soluble and insoluble, and they are not the same. Insoluble fibers like cellulose, like the stringy stuff in celery. Soluble fibers like pectins or inulin, things that hold jelly together. They're both fiber, but they're clearly different. Mm -hmm. soluble and soluble. You need both. And real food has both. Processed food has neither. So what happens? Imagine a spaghetti colander. It's a metal bowl with holes. You run the water, water runs right through. Okay, now take a blob of petroleum jelly, throw it into the center of the colander, run the water. Still runs right through, bounces off the jelly. Now take your finger and rub the petroleum jelly all the way around the inside of the colander. Now run the water. Now you got a barrier. Now the water won't go through. Well, the same thing happens in your duodenum. The insoluble fibers like the colander, the soluble fibers like the jelly, Together, they form an impenetrable secondary barrier. You can actually see it, a whitish barrier. You can see it on electron microscopy. And what it's doing is it's inhibiting the transport of glucose, fructose, simple carbohydrates, and certain fats early on in the duodenum. So they don't go via the portal vein straight to the liver. That's protecting your liver. Well, if they don't go straight to your liver, where do they go? Well, they go further down the duodenum, past the ligament atrites. pH is now 7.4. And now what do you got? You got the microbiome. Okay, they can't live in the duodenum because the pH hasn't changed yet. Okay, because the sphincter of OD, you know, injects the pancreatic juice, has to mix with the chyme, happens after the ligament atrites. Right. So all of those bacteria are in the jejunum and in the ileum. Okay, so now it's a free-for-all whether or not those nutrients that would have gotten absorbed early, whether or not the bacteria will chew them up versus whether you will absorb them. 
Point is you are now feeding your gut and the soluble fiber, the pectins, inulin, et cetera, they are specific food for the colonic bacteria and they ferment those into short chain fatty acids, butyrate and propionate, which turn out to be anti-insulin, insulin suppressive, and also immune modulating. They suppress the cytokine response. And so that's why obese people who eat no fiber are more susceptible to dying from COVID. Mm -hmm. So protect the liver, feed the gut. Real food does both. Processed food does neither. Processed food is poison because it floods the liver and starves the gut. And the distinction between real food and processed food is that real food does not have a label. That's right. Real, you know, real food doesn't need a label because nothing's been done to it. Nothing's that's been done US, to it. That's the FDA rules. If nothing's been done yeah. to it, it doesn't need a label. So yeah. an apple doesn't have a label. A radish doesn't have a label. A broccoli doesn't have a label. Okay. But if something's been done to it, then it does need a label. So right. everybody, every consumer, every doctor has to basically look at every food label as a warning label. That you probably shouldn't be eating it. Possibly not. Depends yeah. on what the degree of processing was. Point right. is, it's not what's in the food. It's what's been done to the food that matters. And that's the point I try to make in metabolical. You know, I, I know we're tight on time here, but if you could talk about two other things briefly, sugar is a drug. Sure. It's addictive. And then also the relationship of depression to processed food and sugar. If you can just briefly, you know, throw something out about that. I'll have to make them fast. Okay. Yeah. Sugar is a drug. Well, why wouldn't sugar be a drug? I mean, you know, um, coca leaves are medicinal. Cocaine is a drug. All right. Um, you know, uh, opium poppies were a medicinal morphine or heroin is a drug. Okay. Um, uh, you know, there are lots of, you know, cases where you, when you purify a substance, it substance. takes on new product, new, new properties. Well, sugar does the same thing. All right. So sugar acts very differently from its precursor, sugar cane or beets or whatever, okay? It's a different thing when you, when you crystallize it, purify it, and then provide it. And, you know, it generates that reward center, you know, the nucleus accumbens in the brain, it generates that reward center. The problem is that, <clears throat> dopamine. and dopamine, you know, is good because it gets you out of bed in the morning. It's your reward neurotransmitter, but chronic dopamine because it's an excitatory neurotransmitter, just like glutamate causes neuronal cell death. And that's it's the same place as drugs that act nucleus accumbens. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So sugar is a drug because it acts at the nucleus accumbens. Right. And now depression. So depression is due to lack of omega-3s because of decreased uh, neuronal transmission. The, you know, vi vitamin insufficiencies because a lot of processed food has basically been stripped of its vitamin content and bred to be vitamin deficient because most vitamins don't taste good. So, you know, the, the sweeter the fruit, the likelihood that the nutrient content of that fruit has been uh, uh, specifically bred out. Mm -hmm. So bottom line, our entire diet is overly sweet on purpose because the food industry learned that when they add it, you buy more. And, you know, the, the last small tidbit is that it's, it's good to eat fruit because it comes packaged together with fiber. Yeah. The fiber and, is the good part. Yeah. But we throw it and, in the package. Yeah. And then it gets it to the duodenum, past the duodenum into the intestine where the in, intestinal microbes can digest that fructose and take away a lot of it. Uh, and, you know, and, create short chain fatty acids, which yes. yeah, yeah. So bottom line, our food supply is designed to kill us. Literally. Literally. And the problem is that the food industry knows it. Yeah. Okay. Finally, last small question. Do you eat dessert? And if, <laughs> if I, because I love uh, Ben and Jerry's chocolate peanut butter ice cream beyond comprehension, should I be eating that with a kale salad? Okay. So, so <laughs> I don't tell people what I eat. Okay. That's number one. <laughs> However, I will tell you that I have, um, one, uh, trigger, uh, dessert. Okay. <laughs> and that is Junior's cheesecake. 
Okay, so right. we all have our little thing, yeah. I have uh, Junior's cheesecake sets me <laughs> off. Okay, and, and also bread pudding in New Orleans. You know, those are those uh, are my two my two triggers. Two things. Yeah, like, I'm I'm going to leave everything else alone on this, other than to say that um, des- I'm for dessert. For dessert, I am not for dessert for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, like that array of foods that were. Yeah, in front of all the faculty and residents. Yeah. Right. yeah. Well, just think about this. The National School Breakfast Program. What is that? It's a bowl of Fruit Loops and a glass of orange juice. That's 41 grams of sugar. The American Heart Association says no more than 12 grams of sugar for a child for the whole day. Good God. So triple yeah. triple. limit. And it's just breakfast. Yeah, just breakfast. Yeah. Well, uh, just last comment by me, and that is, you know, the diet issue and what I love about what you have done in the book and what you've talked about is all the diets are good as long as they involve real food. And, And that's the real key. The key is it doesn't matter if you're vegan or keto. It doesn't matter if you're paleo or Japanese or whatever. Okay. All or Mediterranean, it doesn't matter. None of none of it matters. What matters is that all diets that work anywhere around the world are real food. And the only diet that doesn't work is the Western diet, which is processed food. Well, on that note, uh, a huge thank you for joining us today on the podcast. I I hope everyone goes out and buys a metabolical and and reads it cover to cover. It's it's truly a, a, a a remarkable contribution. I so appreciate your yeah. support, Mike. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Lustig. All right. Good luck. And yeah, good luck thanks. out there. Okay. Stop <laughs> doing surgeries and start thinking about root causes. <laughs> good luck with that. All right. <laughs> Thank you. All right. You have a good day. Thanks again. Bye. Bye-bye. This has been The Resilient Surgeon, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag BeYourBestSelf. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.